Chapter fifty one, part nine of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter fifty one Conquests by the Arabs, part nine. On the intelligence of this rapid success, the applause of Musa degenerated into envy, and he began not to complain, but to fear, that Tariq would leave him nothing to subdue. At the head of ten thousand Arabs and eight thousand Africans, he passed over in person from Mauritania to Spain. The first of his companions were the noblest of the Koreish. His eldest son was left in the command of Africa. The three younger brethren were of an age and spirit to second the bold enterprises of their father. At his landing in Algezir, he was respectfully entertained by Count Julian, who stifled his inward remorse, and testified, both in words and actions, that the victory of the Arabs had not impaired his attachment to their cause. Some enemies yet remained for the sword of Musa. The tardy repentance of the Goths had compared their own numbers and those of the invaders. The cities from which the march of Tariq had declined considered themselves as impregnable, and the bravest patriots defended the fortifications of Sevilla and Merida. They were successfully besieged and reduced by the labour of Musa, who transported his camp from the Botis to the Anas, from the Guadalquivir to the Guadiana. When he beheld the works of Roman magnificence, the bridge, the aqueducts, the triumphal arches, and the theatre of the ancient metropolis of Lusitania, I should imagine, said he to his four companions, that the human race must have united their art and power in the foundation of this city. Happy is the man who shall become its master. He aspired to that happiness, but the Emeritans sustained on this occasion the honour of their descent from the veteran legionaries of Augustus. Disdaining the confinement of their walls, they gave battle to the Arabs on the plain, but an ambuscade rising from the shelter of a quarry or a ruin chastised their indiscretion and intercepted their return. The wooden turrets of assault were rolled forwards to the foot of the rampart, but the defence of Merida was obstinate and long, and the castle of the martyrs was a perpetual testimony of the losses of the Muslims. The constancy of the besieged was at length subdued by famine and despair, and the prudent victor disguised his impatience under the names of clemency and esteem. The alternative of exile or tribute was allowed, the churches were divided between the two religions, and the wealth of those who had fallen in the siege, or retired to Galicia, were confiscated as the reward of the faithful. In the midway between Merida and Toledo, the lieutenant of Musa saluted the vice-regent of the Caliph, and conducted him to the palace of the Gothic kings. Their first interview was cold and formal, a rigid account was exacted of the treasures of Spain, the character of Tariq was exposed to suspicion and obloquy, and the hero was imprisoned, reviled, and ignominiously scourged by the hand, or the command, of Musa. Yet so strict was the discipline, so pure the zeal, or so tame the spirit, of the primitive Muslims, that after this public indignity, Tariq could serve and be trusted in the reduction of the Tarragonist province. A mosque was erected at Saragossa, by the liberality of the Koreish. The port of Barcelona was opened to the vessels of Syria, and the Goths were pursued beyond the Peranian mountains into their Gallic province of Septimania, or Languedoc. In the church of St. Mary at Carcassonne, Musa found, but it is improbable that he left, seven equestrian statues of massy silver, 
and from his term or column of Narbonne, he returned on his footsteps to the Galician and Lusitanian shores of the ocean. During the absence of the father, his son, Abdelaziz, chastised the insurgents of Sevilla, and reduced, from Malaga to Valencia, the sea-coast of the Mediterranean. His original treaty with the discreet and valiant Theodemir will represent the manners and policy of the times. The conditions of peace agreed and sworn between Abdelaziz, the son of Musa, the son of Nasser, and Theodemir, the prince of the Goths. In the name of the most merciful God, Abdelaziz makes peace on these conditions, that Theodemir shall not be disturbed in his principality, nor any injury be offered to the life or property, the wives and children, the religion and temples of the Christians, that Theodemir shall freely deliver his seven cities, Orihuela, Valentola, Alicanti Mola, Vacasora, Begera, now Beher, Ora, or Opta, and Lorca, that he shall not assist or entertain the enemies of the Caliph, but shall faithfully communicate his knowledge of their hostile designs, that himself and each of the Gothic nobles shall annually pay one piece of gold, four measures of wheat, as many of barley, with a certain proportion of honey, oil, and vinegar, and that each of their vassals shall be taxed at one moiety of the said imposition. Given the fourth of Regeb, in the year of the Hegira ninety-four, and subscribed with the names of four Mussulman witnesses. Theodemir and his subjects were treated with uncommon lenity, but the rate of tribute appears to have fluctuated from a tenth to a fifth, according to the submission or obstinacy of the Christians. In this revolution, many partial calamities were inflicted by the carnal or religious passions of the enthusiasts. Some churches were profaned by the new worship, some relics or images were confounded with idols, the rebels were put to the sword, and one town, an obscure place between Cordova and Sevilla, was raised to its foundations. Yet if we compare the invasion of Spain by the Goths, or its recovery by the kings of Castile and Aragon, we must applaud the moderation and discipline of the Arabian conquerors. The exploits of Musa were performed in the evening of life, though he affected to disguise his age by colouring with a red powder the whiteness of his beard. But in the love of action and glory, his breast was still fired with the ardour of youth, and the possession of Spain was considered only as the first step to the monarchy of Europe. With a powerful armament by sea and land, he was preparing to repass the Pyrenees, to extinguish in Gaul and in Italy the declining kingdoms of the Franks and Lombards, and to preach the unity of God on the altar of the Vatican. From thence, subduing the barbarians of Germany, he proposed to follow the course of the Danube from its source to the Euxine Sea, to overthrow the Greek or Roman Empire of Constantinople, and, returning from Europe to Asia, to unite his new acquisitions with Antioch and the provinces of Syria. But his vast enterprise, perhaps of easy execution, must have seemed extravagant to vulgar minds, and the visionary conqueror was soon reminded of his dependence and servitude. The friends of Tariq had effectually stated his services and wrongs. At the court of Damascus, the proceedings of Musa were blamed, his intentions were suspected, and his delay in complying with the first invitation was chastised by a harsher and more peremptory summons. An intrepid messenger of the caliph entered his camp at Lugo in Galicia, and in the presence of the Saracens and Christians arrested the bridle of his horse. His own loyalty, or that of his troops, inculcated the duty of obedience, and his disgrace was alleviated by the recall of his rival, and the permission of investing with his two governments his two sons, Abdullah and Abdulaziz. His long triumph from Ceuta to Damascus displayed the spoils of Africa and the treasures of Spain, 
four hundred Gothic nobles, with gold coronets and girdles, were distinguished in his train, and the number of male and female captives, selected for their birth or beauty, was computed at eighteen or even thirty thousand persons. As soon as he reached Tiberias in Palestine, he was apprised of the sickness and danger of the caliph, by a private message from Solomon, his brother and presumptive heir, who wished to reserve for his own reign the spectacle of victory. Had Walid recovered, the delay of Musa would have been criminal. He pursued his march, and found an enemy on the throne. In his trial before a partial judge against a popular antagonist, he was convicted of vanity and falsehood, and a fine of two hundred thousand pieces of gold either exhausted his poverty or proved his rapaciousness. The unworthy treatment of Tariq was revenged by a similar indignity, and the veteran commander, after a public whipping, stood a whole day in the sun before the palace gate, till he obtained a decent exile, under the pious name of a pilgrimage to Mecca. The resentment of the caliph might have been satiated with the ruin of Musa, but his fears demanded the extirpation of a potent and injured family. A sentence of death was intimated with secrecy and speed to the trusty servants of the throne, both in Africa and in Spain, and the forms, if not the substance, of justice were superseded in this bloody execution. In the mosque, or palace of Cordova, Abdulaziz was slain by the sword of the conspirators. They accused their governor of claiming the honours of royalty, and his scandalous marriage with Ijelona, the widow of Roderick, offended the prejudices both of the Christians and Muslims. By a refinement of cruelty, the head of the son was presented to the father, with an insulting question, whether he acknowledged the features of the rebel. "'I know his features,' he exclaimed with indignation, "'I assert his innocence, and I imprecate the same, a juster fate, against the authors of his death.' The age and despair of Musa raised him above the power of kings, and he expired at Mecca of the anguish of a broken heart. His rival was more favourably treated, his services were forgiven, and Tariq was permitted to mingle with the crowd of slaves.' I am ignorant whether Count Julian was rewarded with the death which he deserved indeed, though not from the hands of the Saracens, but the tale of their ingratitude to the sons of Witiza is disproved by the most unquestionable evidence. The two royal youths were reinstated in the private patrimony of their father, but on the decease of Ebba, the elder, his daughter was unjustly despoiled of her portion by the violence of her uncle Sigibut. The Gothic maid pleaded her cause before the caliph Hashem, and obtained the restitution of her inheritance, but she was given in marriage to a noble Arabian, and their two sons, Isaac and Ibrahim, were received in Spain with the consideration that was due to their origin and riches. A province is assimilated to the victorious state by the introduction of strangers, and the imitative spirit of the natives, and Spain, which had been successively tinctured with Punic and Roman and Gothic blood, imbibed in a few generations the name and manners of the Arabs. The first conquerors, and the twenty successive lieutenants of the caliphs, were attended by a numerous train of civil and military followers, who preferred a distant fortune to a narrow home. The private and public interest was promoted by the establishment of faithful colonies, and the cities of Spain were proud to commemorate the tribe or country of their eastern progenitors. The victorious though motley bands of Tariq and Musa asserted, by the name of Spaniards, their original claim of conquest, yet they allowed their brethren of Egypt to share their establishments of Mercia and Lisbon. The royal legion of Damascus was planted at Cordova, that of Amisa at Sevilla, that of Kinisarin or Calchas at Jane, that of Palestine at Algezira and Medina Sidonia. The natives of Yemen and Persia were scattered around Toledo and the inland country, and the fertile seats of Granada were bestowed on ten thousand horsemen of Syria and Iraq, 
the children of the purest and most noble of the Arabian tribes. A spirit of emulation, sometimes beneficial, more frequently dangerous, was nourished by these hereditary factions. Ten years after the conquest, a map of the province was presented to the caliph, the seas, the rivers, and the harbors, the inhabitants and cities, the climate, the soil, and the mineral productions of the earth. In the space of two centuries, the gifts of nature were improved by the agriculture, the manufactures, and the commerce of an industrious people, and the effects of their diligence have been magnified by the idleness of their fancy. The first of the Omeyads who reigned in Spain solicited the support of the Christians, and in his edict of peace and protection he contends himself with a modest imposition of ten thousand ounces of gold, ten thousand pounds of silver, ten thousand horses, as many mules, one thousand cuirasses, with an equal number of helmets and lances. The most powerful of his successors derived from the same kingdom the annual tribute of twelve millions and forty-five thousand diners, or pieces of gold, about six millions of sterling money, a sum which, in the tenth century, most probably surpassed the united revenues of the Christian monarchs. His royal seat of Cordova contained six hundred mosques, nine hundred baths, and two hundred thousand houses. He gave laws to eighty cities of the first, to three hundred of the second and third order, and the fertile banks of the Guadalquivir were adorned with twelve thousand villages and hamlets. The Arabs might exaggerate the truth, but they created and described the most prosperous era of the riches, the cultivation, and the populousness of Spain. The wars of the Muslims were sanctified by the Prophet, but among the various precepts and examples of his life, the caliphs selected the lessons of toleration that might tend to disarm the resistance of the unbelievers. Arabia was the temple and patrimony of the god of Mohammed, but he beheld with less jealousy and affection the nations of the earth. The polytheists and idolaters, who were ignorant of his name, might be lawfully extirpated by his votaries, but a wise policy supplied the obligation of justice, and after some acts of intolerant zeal, the Mahometan conquerors of Hindostan have spared the pagans of that devout and populous country. The disciples of Abraham, of Moses, and of Jesus, were solemnly invited to accept the more perfect revelations of Mohammed, but if they preferred the payment of a moderate tribute, they were entitled to the freedom of conscience and religious worship. In a field of battle the forfeit lives of the prisoners were redeemed by the profession of Islam. The females were bound to embrace the religion of their masters, and a race of sincere proselytes was gradually multiplied by the education of the infant captives. But the millions of African and Asiatic converts, who swelled the native band of the faithful Arabs, must have been allured, rather than constrained, to declare their belief in one God and the Apostle of God. By the repetition of a sentence and the loss of a foreskin, the subject or the slave, the captive or the criminal, arose in a moment the free and equal companion of the victorious Muslims. Every sin was expiated, every engagement was dissolved, the vow of celibacy was superseded by the indulgence of nature, the active spirits who slept in the cloister were awakened by the trumpet of the Saracens, and in the convulsion of the world every member of a new society ascended to the natural level of his capacity and courage. The minds of the multitude were tempted by the invisible as well as temporal blessings of the Arabian prophet, and charity will hope that many of his proselytes entertained a serious conviction of the truth and sanctity of his revelation. In the eyes of an inquisitive polytheist it must appear worthy of the human and the divine nature. More pure than the system of Zoroaster, more liberal than the law of Moses, the religion of Mohammed might seem less inconsistent with reason than the creed of mystery and superstition, 
which in the seventh century disgraced the simplicity of the gospel. In the extensive provinces of Persia and Africa, the national religion has been eradicated by the Mohammedan faith. The ambiguous theology of the Magi stood alone among the sects of the East, but the profane writings of Zoroaster might, under the reverend name of Abraham, be dexterously connected with the chain of divine revelation. Their evil principle, the demon Ahriman, might be represented as the rival, or as the creature, of the god of light. The temples of Persia were devoid of images, but the worship of the sun and of fire might be stigmatized as a gross and criminal idolatry. The milder sentiment was consecrated by the practice of Mohammed and the prudence of the caliphs. The Magians, or Gebers, were ranked with the Jews and Christians among the people of the written law, and as late as the third century of the Hegira, the city of Herat will afford a lively contrast of private zeal and public toleration. Under the payment of an annual tribute, the Mohammedan law secured to the Gebers of Herat their civil and religious liberties, but the recent and humble mosque was overshadowed by the antique splendor of the adjoining temple of fire. A fanatic imam deplored, in his sermons, the scandalous neighborhood, and accused the weakness or indifference of the faithful. Excited by his voice, the people assembled in tumult, the two houses of prayer were consumed by flames, but the vacant ground was immediately occupied by the foundations of a new mosque. The injured Magi appealed to the sovereign of Khorasan. He promised justice and relief, when, behold, four thousand citizens of Herat, of a grave character and mature age, unanimously swore that the idolatrous fane had never existed. The Inquisition was silenced, and their conscience was satisfied, says the historian Mirchand, with this holy and meritorious perjury. But the greatest part of the temples of Persia were ruined by the insensible and general desertion of their votaries. It was insensible, since it is not accompanied with any memorial of time or place, of persecution or resistance. It was general, since the whole realm, from Shiraz to Samarkand, imbibed the faith of the Koran, and the preservation of the native tongue reveals the descent of the Mahometans of Persia. In the mountains and deserts an obstinate race of unbelievers adhered to the superstitions of their fathers, and a faint tradition of the Magian theology is kept alive in the province of Kirman, along the banks of the Indus, among the exiles of Surat, and in the colony which, in the last century, was planted by Shah Abbas at the gates of Ispahan. The chief pontiff has retired to Mount Elborz, eighteen leagues from the city of Yedz. The perpetual fire, if it continues to burn, is inaccessible to the profane, but his residence is the school, the oracle, and the pilgrimage of the Gebers, whose hard and uniform features attest the unmingled purity of their blood. Under the jurisdiction of their elders, eighty thousand families maintain an innocent and industrious life. Their subsistence is derived from some curious manufactures and mechanical trades, and they cultivate the earth with the fervor of a religious duty. Their ignorance withstood the despotism of Shah Abbas, who demanded with threats and tortures the prophetic books of Zoroaster, and this obscure remnant of the Magians is spared by the moderation or contempt of their present sovereigns. The northern coast of Africa is the only land in which the light of the gospel, after a long and perfect establishment, has been totally extinguished. The arts which had been taught by Carthage and Rome were involved in a cloud of ignorance. The doctrine of Cyprian and Augustine was no longer studied. Five hundred Episcopal churches were overturned by the hostile fury of the Donatists, the Vandals, and the Moors. The zeal and numbers of the clergy declined, and the people, without discipline or knowledge or hope, submissively sunk under the yoke of the Arabian prophet. 
Within fifty years after the expulsion of the Greeks, a lieutenant of Africa informed the caliph that the tribute of the infidels was abolished by their conversion, and though he sought to disguise his fraud and rebellion, his specious pretense was drawn from the rapid and extensive progress of the Mohammedan faith. In the next age, an extraordinary mission of five bishops was detached from Alexandria to Chiron. They were ordained by the Jacobite patriarch to cherish and revive the dying embers of Christianity, but the interposition of a foreign prelate, a stranger to the Latins, an enemy to the Catholics, supposes the decay and dissolution of the African hierarchy. It was no longer the time when the successors of St. Cyprian, at the head of a numerous synod, could maintain an equal contest with the ambition of the Roman pontiff. In the eleventh century, the unfortunate priest who was seated on the ruins of Carthage implored the arms and the protection of the Vatican, and he bitterly complains that his naked body had been scourged by the Saracens, and that his authority was disputed by the four suffragans, the tottering pillars of his throne. Two epistles of Gregory the Seventh are destined to soothe the distress of the Catholics and the pride of a Moorish prince. The Pope assures the Sultan that they both worship the same God, and may hope to meet in the bosom of Abraham, but the complaint that three bishops could no longer be found to consecrate a brother announces the speedy and inevitable ruin of the Episcopal order. The Christians of Africa and Spain had long since submitted to the practice of circumcision and the legal abstinence from wine and pork, and the name of Mozarabes, adoptive Arabs, was applied to their civil or religious conformity. About the middle of the twelfth century, the worship of Christ and the succession of pastors were abolished along the coast of Barbary, and in the kingdoms of Cordova and Sevilla, of Valencia and Granada. The throne of the Almohades, or Unitarians, was founded on the blindest fanaticism, and their extraordinary rigor might be provoked or justified by the recent victories and intolerant zeal of the princes of Sicily and Castilla, of Aragon and Portugal. The faith of the Mozarabes was occasionally revived by the papal missionaries, and on the landing of Charles V some families of Latin Christians were encouraged to rear their heads at Tunis and Algiers. But the seed of the gospel was quickly eradicated, and the long province from Tripoli to the Atlantic has lost all memory of the language and religion of Rome. After the revolution of eleven centuries, the Jews and Christians of the Turkish Empire enjoy the liberty of conscience which was granted by the Arabian caliphs. They suspected the loyalty of the Catholics, whose name of Melkites betrayed their secret attachment to the Greek emperor, while the Nestorians and Jacobites, his inveterate enemies, approved themselves the sincere and voluntary friends of the Mahometan government. Yet this partial jealousy was healed by time and submission. The churches of Egypt were shared with the Catholics, and all the Oriental sects were included in the common benefits of toleration. The rank, the immunities, the domestic jurisdiction of the patriarchs, the bishops, and the clergy, were protected by the civil magistrate, the learning of individuals recommended them to the employment of sectaries and physicians, they were enriched by the lucrative collection of the revenue, and their merit was sometimes raised to the command of cities and provinces. A caliph of the house of Abbas was heard to declare that the Christians were most worthy of trust in the administration of Persia. The Muslims, said he, will abuse their present fortunes, the Magians regret their fallen greatness, and the Jews are impatient for their approaching deliverance but the slaves of despotism are exposed to the alternatives of favor and disgrace. The captive churches of the East have been afflicted in every age by the avarice or bigotry of their rulers, and the ordinary and legal restraints must be offensive to the pride or the zeal of the Christians. 
About two hundred years after Mohammed, they were separated from their fellow-subjects by a turban or girdle of less honourable colour. Instead of horses or mules, they were condemned to ride on asses, in the attitude of women. Their public and private building were measured by a diminutive standard. In the streets or the baths it is their duty to give way or bow down before the meanest of people, and their testimony is rejected, if it may tend to the prejudice of a true believer." The pomp of processions, the sound of bells or of psalmody, is interdicted in their worship. A decent reverence for the national faith is imposed on their sermons and conversations, and the sacrilegious attempt to enter a mosque, or to seduce a Mussulman, will not be suffered to escape with impunity. In a time, however, of tranquillity and peace, the Christians have never been compelled to renounce the gospel, or to embrace the Koran, but the punishment of death is inflicted upon the apostates who have professed and deserted the law of Mohammed. The martyrs of Cordova provoked the sentence of the Qadri, by the public profession of their inconstancy, or their passionate invectives against the person and religion of the Prophet. At the end of the first century of the Hegira, the Caliphs were the most potent and absolute monarchs of the globe. Their prerogative was not circumscribed, either in right or in fact, by the power of the nobles, the freedom of the commons, the privileges of the church, the votes of a senate, or the memory of a free constitution. The authority of the companions of Mohammed expired with their lives, and the chiefs or emirs of the Arabian tribes left behind, in the desert, the spirit of equality and independence. The regal and sacerdotal characters were united in the successors of Mohammed, and if the Koran was the rule of their actions, they were supreme judges and interpreters of that divine book. They reigned by the right of conquest over the nations of the East, to whom the name of liberty was unknown, and who were accustomed to applaud in their tyrants the acts of violence and severity that were exercised at their own expense. Under the last of the Omeyades, the Arabian Empire extended two hundred days' journey from east to west, from the confines of Tartary and India to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. And if we retrench the sleeve of the robe, as it is styled by their writers, the long and narrow province of Africa, the solid and compact dominion from Fargana to Aden, from Tarsus to Surat, will spread on every side to the measure of four or five months of the march of a caravan. We should vainly seek the indissoluble union and easy obedience that pervaded the government of Augustus and the Antonines, but the progress of the Mohammedan religion diffused over this ample space a general resemblance of manners and opinions. The language and laws of the Koran were studied with equal devotion at Samarkand and Sevilla. The Moor and the Indian embraced as countrymen and brothers in the pilgrimage of Mecca, and the Arabian language was adopted as the popular idiom in all the provinces to the westward of the Tigris. End of chapter 51, part 9